0: The following message was given by Shai Lin at the 2017 Worship God Conference held in Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah, Bob, Bob is absolutely right in that we have the most important things we have in common. Praise God. Praise God. Well, it is, it is a joy to be able to join y'all. Me, me and my wife, We <laughs> one of the things we say about the Sovereign Grace fam, is that y'all get nice and rowdy when it comes to the Lord. And we love that because we come from a context where we get rowdy about the things that we're excited about. And so, so it's been, yeah, just a joy to be able to, uh, to join with y'all. Um, so as we continue to think about the tensions in worship, tonight we'll be thinking about what it means to be both rooted and relevant. So rooted, meaning this, what we've entered into is not something new. There's a such thing as the historic Christian faith, the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. It originated with God's decrees in eternity past. It found expression with creation in Genesis 1 and it provides the solution to the fall in Genesis 3 and ultimately culminates in the arrival, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the ultimate return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're rooted in. At the same time, as much as we love the old, old story, God is not dead. He's not a God who only worked back then. No, he's active now. He's present now. He's doing things now. He's relevant now. Far too often we swing to one side or the other. So some churches are so relevant that they only have time for things that are new. It's got to be the latest this and the latest that, but while the latest this and the latest that might be cool in the moment, if it's not rooted, it does not have staying power. It will fade into obscurity like every other fad. But my guess is that that's probably not going to be the main issue here. Some of our churches in a misguided attempt to be rooted, it can feel like it's the 1500s when you walk up in there. And that's not a compliment. Some people are like, yeah, 1500. No. Praise God for the Puritans, but you are not a Puritan. Stop playing, you're not a Puritan. Don't be breaking out no powdered wig to preach either. (laughs) Come on, man. And yes, it's okay to sing a song that was written within the last century. That's all right, provided it highlights God in the gospel. So we want to avoid both extremes. So how do we think about rootedness and relevance in the context of worship? Well, first, we need to understand that worship is ultimately at the heart of all human behavior and not just Christians. Everybody is a worshiper. The word worship comes from the old English word worth-ship, worth-ship. So to worship is to find worth in something in an ultimate sense. It's to ascribe value to something. Worship in some form is behind all the activity that we see in the world today from politics to the arts, from athletics to entertainment, from the military to the street corner. This world is fueled, empowered, and motivated by worship. And it's not always a conscious thing, but it is a very real thing. And so the question isn't if we will worship, the question is when we do worship, will it be true worship? Will it be God-honoring worship? We must worship, it's how we are wired. It's our chief identity. So before you are a student, an employee, a father, a mom, a wife, you are a worshiper. What we worship is what we prize above all things. My wife and I, we have three kids and one of whom is our three-year-old daughter. And for her, it became very clear that it was food that she ascribed value to. And she was very good, even before she was able to complete whole sentences, she was very good at indicating what she wanted and she was very intelligent about it. So when she was one, she picked up on the fact that we pray before we eat. And at the end of our prayers, we say amen. And so from that point on, whenever she desired food, out of nowhere, she would say, amen. (laughs) And wait to see if food appeared. (laughs) Why? Because she ascribed worth or value to food. Well, as you would expect, our Lord has a lot to say in Scripture about this issue. So I want to encourage you to open to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, and brother Matt Mason, I promise not to steal any thunder from tomorrow. Where's Matt? I haven't met Matt. Oh, there you are. I promise I'm not, not going to steal. All right. Okay. All right. Because I saw what you're talking about. I'm like, oh, I wonder if he's going to speak from this text. But yeah, I won't, I won't steal your thunder, brother. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, and I'll begin reading at verse 1. One of the things we say at the end of our readings, we say, this is God's word, and then the congregation responds, thanks be to God. So I'll say that at the end of this reading. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the the subject, the ultimate subject of your word, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that in this time, the Spirit of God would use the Word of God to reveal the Son of God. And we pray that you would do this for the glory of your name and for our everlasting joy in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So before we even get to what the Apostle Paul tells the Christians at Rome to do here, notice the strong language at the beginning of the verse. I appeal to you. That's a strong word that he's using, it's an an urging, He's, he's pleading. The King James says, I beseech you. So there's passion behind this request. And the word that he uses next is what makes Christianity unique. That word is therefore, therefore. Therefore, points us back to everything that came before in the first 11 chapters. So most of you know the main points of Romans. All are guilty before God. All are under the just wrath of God. It's true for the non-religious in Romans 1, and it's true for the religious in Romans 2. We have all offended God with our sin, and that sin brings about wrath and God does the unthinkable. Beginning in chapter three, verse 21, we see that he sends his son, Jesus Christ, to take that wrath on our behalf, even though Jesus never committed a sin. So Jesus Christ died as a substitute. On the cross, Jesus suffered in our place, then he rose from the dead, and all who repent and believe in Jesus are saved from the wrath to come. That's the good news that we've been singing about. And not only that, we're also changed and made more like Jesus in this life, a process called sanctification. That's a very brief summary of what's implied in the therefore, but here's why it's unique. Every other religion says some form of, offer yourself to God and therefore, he will be merciful to you. Only Christianity says, God has been merciful, therefore, offer yourself. You see the distinction? Other religions say, do these good works and God will rescue you. Christianity says, God has rescued you, therefore, do these good works. It's not only non-Christian religions that make this error, but distorted forms of Christianity make this error as well. So a large part of Bible Belt religion is, say a prayer, be a good person, evangelize, and therefore, God will save you. That is not Christianity. Christianity is God has done this amazing thing through Jesus Christ, therefore, live for his glory. And so, that just brings up a very practical question, where is your therefore? Does your therefore come before or after salvation? So, if it comes before, i.e., I do these things, even good Christian things, like worship leader, and I play in the band, or I sing on the praise team, and therefore, God accepts me, we say no. that 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 kind of mindset is something that must be turned away from. What we say is God has accepted us and therefore we follow him. And so Paul here is not explaining the way to be saved. Notice he says, therefore brothers. So he's talking to people who are already saved. He's telling them how to live for the glory of God. Now, as Paul continues his appeal, he makes reference to the mercies of God. And notice that mercies is plural, not singular. He has particular acts of mercy in mind. The mercies of God are the basis of his appeal. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, I appeal to you by the coming judgment or I appeal to you by the holiness of God, though those things are absolutely true and they're used as motivations elsewhere in Scripture. But here he says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Why is that? Well, it's because nothing melts the heart like the tender mercies of God. There's a sweetness in obedience that is motivated by mercy. A cruel slave master can produce outward obedience based on fear, but only a benevolent heavenly father can melt a cold heart with his mercy. And so what are these mercies being referred to here? In order to do that, we actually have to go back through Romans. And so what I want to do is, I just want to walk through some of the mercies here, and this isn't an exhaust, exhaustive list, but I think sometimes we can walk with the Lord so long and we can read books like Romans for so long that, that our hearts are not as warmed to the realities that we're reading about as they should be. And so what I want you to do is just turn back in your Bible to Romans chapter 3, and we're just going to walk through some of the, the mercies that are being referred to here in Romans chapter 12. So, beginning at chapter 3, verse 24, again, this is not exhaustive, chapter 3, verse 24, we see the mercy of justification being declared righteous by God. In chapter 3, verse 24, we see the mercy of redemption that is being bought by the blood of Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 25, we see propitiation, that's the mercy of Jesus absorbing the wrath of God. In chapter four, verses seven and eight, we see the mercy of the forgiveness of sins. In chapter five, verse one, we see the mercy of peace with God through Jesus Christ. In chapter five, verse two, the mercy of access to the grace of God. Chapter five, verse two, the mercy of the hope of the glory of God. Chapter five, verse three, the mercy of joy even in the midst of suffering. Chapter 5 verse 5, the mercy of the love of God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 5 verse 5, the mercy of the Holy Spirit himself. Chapter 5 verse 8, the mercy of the love of God. Chapter 5 verse 8, the mercy of Christ's death for us while we were still sinners. Chapter 5 verse 9, the mercy of being saved from the wrath of God. Chapter 5, verse 11, the mercy of being reconciled to God. Chapter 5, verse 20, the mercy of abounding grace. Chapter 5, verse 21, the mercy of eternal life. Chapter 6, verse 2, the mercy of we've died to sin. Chapter 6, verse 5, the mercy of being united with Christ in His death. Chapter 6, verse 5, the mercy of being united with Christ in His resurrection. Chapter 6, verse 13, the mercy of being brought from death to life by God. Chapter 6, verse 18, the mercy of being freed from slavery to sin. Chapter 6, verse 18, the mercy of now being a slave of righteousness. Chapter 6, verse 22, the mercy of sanctification that is being conformed more and more to the image of Christ. Skip ahead to chapter 7, verse 4, the mercy of dying to the law through the body of Christ. Chapter 7, verse 4, the mercy of now belonging to another, to him who's been raised from the dead. Skip ahead to chapter 8, verse 1, the mercy that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 8, verse 3, the mercy of being set free from the law of sin and death. Chapter 8, verse 9, the mercy of the indwelling spirit of God. Chapter 8, verse 15, the mercy of being adopted as sons of God. Chapter 8, verse 17, the mercy of being heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Chapter 8, verse 23, the mercy of the promise of the redemption of our bodies. Chapter 8, verse 26, the mercy of the Spirit's help in our weakness. Chapter 8, verse 27, the mercy of the intercession of the Spirit. Chapter 8, verse 28, the mercy of all things working for our good. Chapter 8, verse 29, the mercy of being foreknown by God. Chapter 8, verse 29, the mercy of being predestined to conformity to Christ by God. Chapter 8, verse 30, being called by God. Chapter 8, verse 30, being justified by God. Chapter 8, verse 30, being glorified by God. Chapter 8, verse 31, the mercy that God is for us. Chapter 8, verse 32, the mercy that God promises to graciously give us all things. Chapter 8 verse 34, the mercy of Jesus Christ interceding for us. Chapter 8 verse 39, the mercy that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Skip ahead to chapter 9 verse 18, the sovereign mercy of God. Chapter 9 verse 23, the the mercy of the riches of His glory made known to vessels of mercy. Chapter 9 verse 25, the Gentiles being called the people of God. Chapter 9, verse 33, we will not be put to shame. Skip ahead to chapter 10, verse 17, the mercy of the faith that came from hearing the word of Christ. Chapter 10, verse 20, the mercy that we found God when we were not seeking him. Skip ahead to chapter 11, verse 5, the mercy of being chosen by grace. Chapter 11, verse 17, we've been grafted into the people of God. Chapter 11, verse 22, the kindness of God. Chapter 11, verse 33, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. Praise the Lord. Is there any wonder why mercies is plural? <laughs> Surely that's why Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Our salvation is rooted in the mercies of God. And so in our gatherings, in our songs, in our preaching, we have the responsibility, the privilege, and the pleasure to flesh that out. We get to flesh out what it means that our salvation is rooted in the mercies of God. That means we have to flesh out the character of God according to the full counsel of God. That means that we have to flesh out the person and work of Jesus Christ. That means that we get to flesh out the responsibilities of discipleship. That's what we're called to give our lives to. But the past mercies don't stay in the past. They have present effects that are extremely relevant. And so that brings me to my second and final point, which is God's mercies are relevant in our present pursuit of God. God's mercies are relevant in our present pursuit of God. So it's in view of these past mercies that we're told to do something radical here in the present. He says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. A living sacrifice, that is a contradiction in terms because sacrifices by definition are dead. So what's happening here? Well, we get a clue into Paul's meaning because he used similar language a few chapters earlier in Romans chapter 6, verses 12 to 14. So there he said, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace." So before we were saved, we offered our bodies to our former master, which was sin. Now we're called to use these same bodies in the service of our new master. There's a movie called 12 Years a Slave. And that movie is based on the life of a man named Solomon Northup, who was a free black man in upstate New York in the 1840s. And Solomon was an accomplished violin player. As the story goes, he was kidnapped and sold into slavery. And one of the most heartbreaking scenes is when he's forced to play the violin at a slave auction where people are being treated like cattle. They're being bought and sold, and, and so where he once played the violin as a free man for the pleasure of captive audiences, he's now playing the violin as an object of scorn and mockery. Well, for Christians, it's the exact opposite. So for Christians, At one time, we were slaves. We had a cruel slave master named Sin, and we used our bodies in his service. But now, we've been freed so that we can now use our bodies for the pleasure of the one who loves us and purchased our freedom with his own blood. This is the logic of 1 Corinthians 620. It says, you were bought at a price, therefore, glorify God in your body. And it's just interesting to note here that we see that the body is important in Christianity, right? So this passage teaches us to not make too sharp of a divide between the spiritual and the physical. Paul is saying here that doing something with our bodies, offering them as living sacrifices is spiritual worship. And that's why true worship is bigger than what we do on Sundays. I'm sure Pastor Matt's going to talk about that tomorrow. It's not less than what we do on Sundays, but it's more than what we do on Sundays. One pastor from back in the day explains living sacrifice like this. He says, the presenting of the body to God implies not only avoiding of the sins that are committed with or against the body. But the using of the body as a servant of the soul in the service of God. I like that. It's, it's, it's not just the negatively avoiding the bad stuff, but it's positively actually using our bodies as a servant. So what does this look like? Very simple. Hands that used to strike out in anger, now being used to help those in need. right? Very simple or to be lifted up as we exult in the glory of God as we sing his praises. It's eyes that used to be consumed with lust, now looking for opportunities to serve others. It's mouths that used to be used only to tear down and to gossip, now being used to build up and to encourage. It's feet, that used to run into sin, now, rushing to help and serve someone. It doesn't get any more relevant than that. Last I checked, we still have bodies. And Paul goes on to tell us how we ought to present our bodies to God. And he uses two words. He says, holy and acceptable. We'll briefly look at them one at a time. First, he says, holy. Christians by definition are holy. 1 Peter 2:9 refers to Christians as a holy nation. Hebrews 12, verse 14 says that without holiness no one shall see the Lord. Ephesians 4:24 says, We're commanded to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I like this quote from J.C. Ryle from his classic on holiness where he says, quote, holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God, according as we find his mind described in scripture. It is the habit of agreeing in God's judgment, hating what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. It's a great description of holiness. And so for us to truly worship God, we must pursue holiness. And do you notice how the Bible here sees no problem with mentioning mercy and holiness in the same context? You was common for people to emphasize one over the other. So, you have people who say it's all about mercy and grace and completely forget about holiness, or you have people who emphasize holiness, but the love and mercy of God is nowhere to be found. Well, the grace and mercy of God and, and holiness are not at odds with one another. Holiness is the consequence of mercy. It's an evidence that mercy is actually there. May we as Christians be characterized by both holiness and mercy. And this is a quick word to single people. Where are my single people in the building? Single people, hands up, okay. Got some single folks in the building. All right, let me just say this. I'm just going to say it real quick. When it comes to choosing a potential mate or spouse, let holiness be the main thing that attracts you to that person. Not simply is she cute or not simply is he successful. Because let me tell you, as a married man, I haven't been married as long as some people have. But let me tell you, in the middle of a conflict, you are not thinking about how cute she is. (laughs) When things are heated in the midst of the challenges and the trials of marriage, you are not thinking about how cute this person is. You're thinking about, we need Jesus. (laughs) Where's Jesus up in here? So, let that be what attracts you to them. That, that was for free, Bob, that was for free. That wasn't, no, no charge for that one. Amen, amen. All right, we'll move on. The second word is acceptable. Another word is of, another way of saying acceptable is pleasing. This text here is saying something that's amazing. It's saying we can please God. Now, we should just pause here for a second. That, because we've just talked about how holy God is. So, this holy God, as holy as he is, that he would accept anything from sinners should leave us astounded. But yet, that's what it says. We can please God. How is that possible? What's well, possible because of God's grace through faith. Because of God's grace through faith. And earlier in Romans chapter 1 verse 5 and later in Romans chapter 16 verse 26, Paul refers to the obedience of faith, that is, the obedience that comes from faith. And we know from Romans 14, 23 that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, but faith does please God. Why does faith please God? Because faith gives God all the glory, (laughs) because it comes from God and it's worked through God, and it goes back to God. So faith is pleasing to God. And by extension, acts of obedience that are prompted by faith are also pleasing to God. Listen to Paul's prayer in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11. He says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can please God by his grace through faith, but we must remember it all goes back to the mercies of God. We will never do anything acceptable to God until we're first accepted by God through Jesus Christ. i say that again. We will never do anything acceptable to God until we're first accepted by God through Jesus Christ. And there's no question in my mind that the biggest obstacle to the kind of worship that's being talked about here is worldliness. So so the quickest way to lose actual relevance is through worldliness. Now usually, worldliness is thought of as all the rules that you'll find at a fundamentalist Christian college. The kinds of movies you watch, secular music, the way you dress, tattoos. Things like that. But while those things might be the result of worldliness, they might not be, but but while they might be, they're not at the heart of it. So what is worldliness? Well, that word in the phrase "conform to this world, it literally means age, it means this age. So in Galatians 1.4, the apostle Paul says that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. And this age is contrasted with the age to come. So this age is characterized by the temporal. The age to come characterized by the eternal. So on Sundays, we concern ourselves with the age to come. Hebrews 6 verse 5 says that we've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. So in reality, there is no such thing as just a normal run of the mill Sunday there's no such thing. We're we're dealing with grand, majestic, eternal realities, the realities of the age to come. Sin, righteousness, heaven, hell. What we do on Sundays is we come to get adjusted. Because from Monday through Saturday, many of us, we've, we, we listen to what the world does, and what the world does is it seeks to keep us earthbound and keeps, keep us bound in this present evil age. And Sundays are a reality adjustment for the believer to say, oh, oh, that, that's right. <laughs> there, there is a coming... Judgment. There is a coming heaven. There is a coming hell. We do have a, a, a redeemer. There, there is a such thing as eternity. We come to be adjusted on Sundays. And, and the privilege that those who lead in, 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 in worship through song have is, is to help us all be adjusted. That's, 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 that's a grand privilege and responsibility. In his book, Losing Our Virtue, David Wells says this about worldliness. He says, worldliness is that system of values in any given age which has at its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and his truth from the world, and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. Worldliness is anything that makes sin seem normal and righteousness seem Strange, And so, the Bible here is telling us, do not live in such a way that indicates that you're only concerned with this present age. That's relevant. We we, we need to know that. We need to know that today because we're getting so many messages from our culture. We need to know this. I I love the J.B. Phillips translation on this verse. He says, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. That's a powerful image. Our souls are like cement, wet cement. Therefore, if you want to be worldly, do you know what you have to do? Nothing. If you do nothing, the world will squeeze you into its mold. That's how it works. The world is like a current which seeks to carry us off to see drift is inevitable, there must be a fight, an active fight against these things. Colossians chapter two, verse six, the Apostle Paul says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. So, so, so the, the key to, not drifting off into the, the, the sea of worldliness in the name of relevance is to remain rooted. Rootedness will keep us from the worldliness that comes from an over-reliance upon relevance. He says we ought to be rooted and built, in, built up in him. He says, as we received Christ Jesus, well how did we receive Christ Jesus? We received him by faith. The program does not change once we get in the building. So we received him by faith and then we continue to walk in him by faith. That's why Christians need the gospel. That's why we need to hear about Jesus every single day and every single Sunday. Let us not grow cold and callous to the gospel. The gospel was our hope that got us in the door, and it's our hope that's going to take us all the way to eternity. We need the gospel. And so, just, just a couple of just practical um, encouragements as we think about these things and as we close. So. In terms of pursuing rootedness, we must pursue rootedness. How do we do that? One, pursue rootedness by focusing on the Bible. (laughs) Pursue rootedness by focusing on the Bible. That's what our gathering should be about. We should be praying the Bible, (laughs) we should be singing the Bible, (laughs) we should be reading the Bible, we should be preaching the Bible. That's what our, that, that, that should inform the content of our gatherings, the Bible. Pursue rootedness by focusing on the Bible. Also, number two, we pursue rootedness through focusing on the gospel because the gospel is the main point of the Bible. So, we are rooted as we focus in on Jesus Christ and him crucified and resurrected and the implications that flow from that. Third, we pursue rootedness through biblical, gospel-saturated prayer. And I'm I'm thinking particularly of corporate prayer. May may, may corporate prayer, crying out to God as a community, may that be a staple, a regular thing in our gatherings. Because as we pray and as we... As we, as we hear the people of God praying, we can, we can hear the heart of God on our, in our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and that helps us. I don't know about y'all, but I, I, I know this has to be the case. How many times have you been encouraged in a prayer meeting and coming and hearing what God has put on the heart of another brother or sister at your church? Have, have y'all had that experience where it's just… You you came in with all different kinds of things going in your heart and then going on in your heart, and then a brother or sister prays, and it's like, ah yes, Lord. That 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 sister is, she's prayed. That's my heart right now. We miss out on those kinds of moments that help us to be to be rooted if we neglect corporate prayer. So, what about relevance? Because I do do believe that relevance is important even as we try to avoid an over-reliance on relevance. So how do we pursue relevance? Well, we pursue relevance by understanding what's going on in our culture today. So we pursue relevance by not being so kind of locked into our own kind of insular world that we don't recognize what's happening in our culture. Don't make it easy for people to come into your building and leave saying they don't have the faintest idea of what I'm dealing with. Don't make it easy for that to be the case. You know, a lot of churches, you can tell when the pastor got saved based on the illustrations that they use. Right? So anytime pastors start talking about, yeah, I remember that Reggie Jackson commercial. You're like, Reggie Jackson? Wait, the basketball player that plays for the Detroit Pistons? The baseball player, what? Oh, okay, he got saved in 72, all right. Right, cats are breaking out Liberace illustrations, right? (laughs) Pursue relevance by knowing what people are watching and listening to. And I'm not saying you have to swim into a sea of filth to do that. But even if you're not actually watching the things yourself, read articles about the stuff. Just just so that you're up on it so that you know, so that you can have a conversation with people who are either in the world or or who are just coming out of the world. And I'm not saying be relevant just for the sake of trying to be cool, but I'm just saying pursue relevance for the sake of of love and, and, and bridge building, building relationships with people. So that people don't think that we're kind of stuck in a bubble and that we don't know what's going on in the world. And so we are not to ignore relevance, but we are not to rely on relevance either. So, by the grace of God, may we be firmly rooted in Christ, in God's Word, in the Gospel, and may we also seek to be relevant to today's culture and let the world today know that our God is absolutely alive and he's absolutely at work. Amen? Amen. So, what I'd like to do now is just close our time by singing the doxology. I got to take advantage of this time with all these singers and musical people here. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Son and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Shai Lin given at the 2017 Worship God Conference held in Louisville, Kentucky. For more information on the conference, visit worshipgodconference.org.